Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradio.org/nach or on my website ericlevy.com under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy, and I am pleased to bring to you Chapter 39 of the Book of Eov. Chapter 39 continues to focus on animal behavior, which began in the last three verses of chapter 38. I'd like to return to that chapter to point out a few things. This poetry that we have in front of us is divinely inspired, perhaps fully prophetically inspired. As such, it's really superb poetry with layers of meaning, which really need to be peeled back and examined layer by layer. But to do that is outside the scope of of our chapter-a-day format. I would like to point out, however, some possible layers, which is this. As with much poetry, one needs to pay attention to the imagery, which may or may not be a metaphor for a hidden reference, or even multiple references, which which means that the images can be literal, but they could also point to one or more um, reference, and they stand it as metaphors for one or more things. For instance... God starts off by challenging Eov with the uh, ability to give the lion uh, the food that he needs. Will you hunt prey for the lion and can you fill the needs of the panther? That's at the end of last chapter. Now, this might be a metaphor for kings, since the lion represents a king, and therefore it's hunting armies, and God may be asking Eov to think about the implications of the king's and his attacking army's behavior in the world. Or maybe, since the literal lion attacks a man as prey, and God has to keep the lion alive as well, then who helps to save a certain man from a lion's jaws, so that the lion finds well, less human prey, or sometimes who decides whether one person dies by a lion or another person dies by a lion. The next animal is the crow, whose starving children in the very last verse of chapter 38 are said to El El Yishaveu, they supplicate to God. But of course, birds don't pray to God, people pray to God. So who do the raven and its children represent? That is, what are they metaphors of? Now, the reader of an inspired poetry, that is, we, us, uh, we must decide how to read these metaphors. And based on, we have to look at the structure, the flow, the terminology, the imagery, any uh, extra-biblical or intra-biblical references that it makes. And then based on all that information, you have to try to figure out what metaphor, what the metaphor is referring to, or whether there is a metaphor. Now, from time to time, I'll make a guess, but the important thing is simply to demonstrate that there's more here in this speech of God, and in all of biblical poetry, than meets the eye. One final word before we begin chapter 39. I think there are two approaches to how to look at what uh, God is saying to Eov here. Either God, uh, God may be describing all this wonderful animal behavior, uh, to explain to Eo that instinctual that this instinctual knowledge is what God decides to give, and since Eo can't do any of that, he can't give it the instincts, he can't understand how those instincts work, then he Eo should be careful in his assumptions and accusations against God. The other possibility is that God may be explaining to Eo um, that. Um, whether we're talking about the animals in particular or whether they're metaphors for various types of peoples, that care 
he, what he's trying to explain to Eov is the kind of care that God has to give to all of these creatures individually, as well as their interrelations as they work upon each other. So if Eov can't do that, if he can't care for these creatures, if he can't manage the full complexity of animal life, so maybe he should realize that God has more responsibilities than meets the eye, and maybe he should, again, be careful about making assumptions and accusations. Let us begin the uh, verse 1 of chapter 39. Do you know the season when ibexes or rock ibexes give birth? Can you watch for the season that the dough calves? Um, this means either are you going to know where to find them among the rocks so that you can help them give birth, like I do, or do you have any idea or control over the miracle of gestation? That is, either do you understand where to find them when they're giving birth, or do you control, can you recognize when, how the gestation process works, and when every animal has to give birth? Can you count the months that they have completed? Do you know the time that they give birth? They crouch, they burst forth their offspring with birth pangs, they cast them out. At the surface level, this means you understand the process of birth, and the answer is no. Um, that is, have you, or are you able to do what God does, which is infusing the animals with chachma, with a specific chachma, no more and no less, that they need in order to allow uh, for their survival and for their breeding. Their offspring grow strong, they grow in numbers in the fields, the word bar is Aramaic for the Hebrew word sadeh, fields, never, never to return to them. This describes the process of these young, young first being born and the miracle of that connection and then when they grow independent they finally go off and leave their uh, herd, their parents never to, their mothers never to return. In verse 5, God now speaks of a new animal and its behavior. Who sends the pere, which is the wild donkey free, and who opens the cords of the burrow? Arod is Aramaic for chamor, but I decided to go with burrow for a little variation on the word donkey. On the surface level, God is pointing out that he infuses these animals um, with the miracle of being able to know when the right time is to go off on their own, and they go off on their own, and they manage on their own. But the word para has been used in the book of Eov uh, before, and it indicates the wild and uncivilized man. So the metaphor may be, uh, who do you think has taken this kind of and uh, this anarchy-driven, pirate-like people and moved them off into the desert, that is, moved them away from civilizations so that they wouldn't impact on them. Asher samti arava That I set their house in the wilderness and its dwelling place in the salted lands. It is in barren, uninhabitable lands. As you can see, I'm very often saying it's, but also I'm saying his because I'm trying to hint that uh, that these animals are not only animals, but they're metaphors for different types of people. He laughs at the hustle and bustle of the city. He does not pay attention to the cries of the animal driver. Again, this works on two levels. It is the freedom of a non-domesticated animal, the burrow, the donkey, that know nothing of domestication. They know nothing of control. And it also refers, I think, to the kind of people that reject order in civilization, in, case, in which case 
case, the word no gays is uh, the person who is a loan collector or a tax collector. So they avoid all structure. Yitur harim mir'ehu v'achar kol yarok yidrosh. They roam the mountains for their pastures. They search for any vegetation. Here in verse 9, we move on to a new animal while continuing on with the behavior of creatures that will not submit to the whip of domestication like the donkey. Hayover Will the wild ox submit to your servants? Will it spend the night over your food troughs? The wild ox actually went extinct about 200 years ago. Um, And the difference with the wild donkey from before is that this creature is related to the very domesticated and the very edible cattle. That is a very functional, its close, close relative was a very, very functional, controllable, useful animal. But while this wild ox, this ra'im, looked very much alike. It did not act in the same way at all. It did not meet expectations. Note, as often happens in this book, the aleph of re'em is taken out, and we have the word re'em with the dagesh chazak and the resh, which indicates that the aleph is absorbed up into that initial resh. Hatikshor re'em betelem avoto im yisadeid amakim acharecha. Can you tie a wild ox with telem reins? Will he follow after you to make your valleys or the valleys arable. A telem is the ditch that is made by the plow's blades as they as they get pushed by uh, the ox, and then they're used for planting. So a telem rain, uh, a telem avoto, uh, must have been a, a special design of reins or straps which control the animal for the very difficult job of plowing. The word is sadeid, means to make a field, that is to make an arable piece of land. And it's like the word sadeh. With all his great strength, can you trust in him? Will you leave all your hard work for him to do? And the answer is clearly no. Will you rely on him to return your seeds, which means probably the produce which grows from the seeds? Will you rely on him to gather it into your granary? So the rain, in my opinion, seems to be a metaphor to a certain type of person that, that is, in spite of his powerful nature, and in spite of the fact that he should be functional and useful, um, that he simply can't be trusted to do the job that you want him to do. He's always off on his own. Now, in verse 13, we move on to the behavior of songbirds and storks, or a comparison of the two. This is a, a very difficult verse for a few reasons. First of all, ne'elasa, ne'elasa can mean happiness, from the word aliz, with a slight change to the samach and the zayin, which often happens in Tanakh, or it can mean to conjugate, that is when animals procreate. Um, the word evra notza in the second part of the verse mean the pinions or the bones of the wing and the plumage of the wing. But the word chasida is a type of bird, or uh, specifically a stork, a chasidah is a stork. So I think what's going on here is that the pasuk, God is contrasting the twittering, wing-flapping songbird, the word renana means to sing, um, in the first half of the poetic line, with the stork in the second half of the line. Now the stork gets its name, chasidah, from the word chesed, because of the way it cares for its young, and it's famous for making very big and noticeable um, uh, nests where it takes care of its young. In fact, in Yirmiyahu chapter 8, the stork is identified as a creature that has sort of a built-in clock of responsibility. 
It says, Gam chasida bashamayim yada moadeha. It knows all the times, it always knows what it has to do at the right time. As opposed to, there in Yirmiyahu, is contrasting them with the nation of Israel who never knows how to do the right thing at the right time. So God seems to be pointing out that there are two kinds of birds, that not all birds are birds of a feather, so to speak. There are the songbirds and there are the storks. And by the way, the stork is a silent bird that makes no sound, but it really cares about its young. Not so the songbird who is being contrasted against the reliable chasidah. Ki ta'azov la'aretz beitseha vi'al afar t'chamem. She abandons her eggs on the ground and heats them in the dust. Va'tishkach ki regel t'zureha v'chayat ha'sadet t'dusheha. Forgetting that legs, that is, that legs of passerbys will crack them, the eggs, and that animals of the field will trample them. Hikshiach banel le'lolah she hardens herself against her heart, against her offspring, that is as if they are not hers, all for naught is her labor, meaning all of that trouble of laying the eggs is all worthless, as if there is nothing, because she leaves them on the ground as if there is nothing to fear. Why does she behave this way? Because God has taken away her knowledge, he has not divided out understanding to her. That is, he has decided that this creature simply will not have the wisdom to understand its responsibilities. As she flies into the heights and laughs at horses and their riders. So we end off this chapter with laughter for the second time. But it's not like the laughter of the wild donkey, which we saw scoffing at control and domestication, but it's the bird brain laughter of, well, birds, who forget their children and their instincts and their responsibilities in self-absorbed flights of fancy, diving and swirling around horses and riders as they pass. And while we're on the subject of horses, we now have a completely different animal behavior. We have the war horse, which I think is a metaphor for God's power in war. On the other hand, in chapter 8 of Yirmiyahu, which I mentioned before, which mentions the stork, it also mentioned the war horse there, but in a negative sense. There the horse is so steeped in battle, it's drawn maniacally into the fray to the point where it doesn't have any common sense anymore. So let's see which, if either, fits this description. Verse 19, Yudtet. Can you, Eo, give might to the horse? Can you dress its neck with a mane? The word Rama is a hapex logomenon, meaning a word that only shows up once here. Uh, in all of Tanakh, but from the context it's quite clear that it means the the hair, the mane on the horse's neck. The mane of the horses, of course, showed its majesty and its power. Can you make it, that is the horse, make noise like locust swarms? Can you make it can you make it make that glorious, fear-inspiring snorting that a horse does when it's going into battle? Keep in mind that locust swarms, which don't seem so scary today since we have pesticides and the like, really when, uh, back in the day, uh, they really made this thunderous noise between their munching and their tramping, which was akin to the thundering of a cavalry's hooves as it galloped into battle, which is being described uh, here. 
They plow joyously into the valley. With power they go out for a meeting of arms. Yachbru means to dig. And I think that the image here is the way a horse digs up and paws on the ground in front of us, as, as in front of it with its hooves, as it gets ready to make its charge. And then it streams down in the, you know, into the valley where the enemy is lined up for that charge. It laughs, that is, the horse laughs at fear. It does not come unglued, it doesn't fall apart. It will not retreat in the face of the sword. So for the third time we have animal laughter, but not the scoffing of the wild donkey or the frivolous twittering of the bird, but here we have the battle cry, the laughter of battle as a, 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 of a single-minded warrior as, it, as he plunges himself into war. The whizzing of the quiver goes by. Again, the word ron means to sing out. So it's like the singing of the arrows, that kind of whizzing sound as it goes by. The unsheathed, the lahav, is the blade, chanit is a spear, and the chidon as a javelin. So if you could picture it, the, the defenders are down in the valley and they're throwing everything they can at the horse's onslaught. They've got their spears set in the ground. They're shooting the arrows as fast as they can, but it doesn't make a difference because the horses just come on and come on. Berash virogez shofar. It's a thunderous, ground-shaking noise. The land is churned into mud. The word gome means to mud. Um, I don't know much about horses. I could tell you about tanks. When tanks go by, uh, essentially what you have is uh, all of the uh, earth that looked very solid is uh, just a muddy, uh, a pockmarked mess. But he, the horse, will not give heed to the sound of the shofar. And I think what the, this means is that once the battle lust takes over, any blasts to, that are sounded to retreat by the shofar with the shofar will not be believed by the horse. That is, it will ignore them. B'day shofar yomar he'ach. To the sounds of the shofar, he calls ha'ach, which means ha-ha. Uh, yes, the word ha'ach is exactly what it means. It's a ha sound. In Tehillim, actually, it's usually used by the enemies of the psalmist as they scorn the psalmist's suffering. But here, again, it depends on how you see the metaphor of the horse. Either it's God um, or it's these uh, crazed, war-driven uh, war people. So it really depends on how you see it. On the other hand, of course, it could be just the literal ha, which is that sound, that whinnying uh, sound that the horse makes as it goes fearlessly into battle at all odds. Getting back to the verse, Yiriach Melchama Ram Sarim he smells war and the roaring and trumpeting of the officers. And now, in the next verse, verse 26, we have the final aspect of animal nature to be discussed in this first speech. Is it because of your understanding, or that is your knowledge, that the hawk gives wing, that it spreads its wings to the south? The reference to the south either means uh, perhaps the way the birds fly south in migration, but I think what they actually, more likely it means... The warm southern winds, because in Israel the, the south was a place of the warm winds, the desert, and it was the way that the birds would get onto these warm winds and sort of coast without even flapping their wings up to the highest parts 
uh, of the skies, since it fits very nicely with the next verse. Im alpicha yagbiah nasher v'chiyarim kino. Is it by your command that the vulture soars high, that it nests in the high places? Sela yishkon v'yitlonan al shen sela umtsudat. It dwells, is it, that is, is it you that, that allows it to dwell in the rocks and spends its nights, uh, up there on jutting rocks and fortresses of stone, meaning on the high cliffs and rocks and outcroppings that no man can reach. Misham chafar ochel From there it digs, meaning it hunts from all the way above to all the way below, as if it's digging through the air and the heights for food, its eyes scanning from far away. So that its chicks can suck or swallow blood wherever the corpses are, it is there. Now this follows perfectly with the previous um, imagery of the war horse, because right after the war horse, what we have behind, left behind in the battle, are the carcasses, the dying and the dead. And this is what brings this next section, because the focus here is on the scavenging birds, and how they always know when and where to scavenge, and they're able to dwell way up high, but they come all the way down to the earth. And they get all the blood and food they need for the enjoyment of their chicks. The word yalla'u is also a singular word here. It could be a short form of the word livloa, uh, to swallow, or la'alos, to digest. But the basic idea is that the chicks are soaking up the blood of the food that their, uh, that their um, uh, mothers bring to them. Uh, again, the metaphor seems to be we have here scavengers, perhaps we had warmongers, we have flighty, self-centered bird brains, we have people that can't be controlled, we have pirate-like and anarchic people, um, and each kind interacts with each other. Each kind must be considered and managed and directed by God. Um, and therefore, what God does in his management of the entire world is something that Eo should take note of. Or again, maybe we should just focus on the simple meaning and not the metaphor that is all this miraculous, instinctual nature of the world and how humans can neither control nor even understand it. And therefore, God is ultimately inscrutable and Eo should be careful with some with a with a God who is clearly inscrutable to the limited human knowledge. Eo will give a short answer in the next chapter, and then God will begin his second speech. So we'll pick up next.